If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, would you turn them on? <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, see, I'm catching up with technology. It used to be able to say, I love to hear the rustle of the Bible turning. And now it's, I love to see the glow of your faces by your iPads and iPhones and smartphones and things like that. But if you have a Bible, you can either open it up or turn it on. And this time, go to the book of Acts. You may keep a finger in 1 Timothy 3, but I want to start this morning in the book of Acts. And uh, you'll see why in just a moment. But before we do that, let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask God to be with us this morning as we look to the Word of God. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to praise you and to worship you in song, in our offerings of praise and financial gifts, all of which came from you. Lord, we read your Word and we're free to do it, and so we're thankful. Father, we bow before you and we are now asking for you to still our hearts to open our minds, to open our eyes and be receptive to the Word of God. Lord, we are preparing ourselves, too, to celebrate your table. When I'm praying to you, I don't need to say the Lord's table. You already know this is your table. And Father, as we heard in that video, I thank you, Father, that you gave your Son and you sealed us by your Spirit so that your Word is true and living and it's powerful and so father i pray that now you would focus us spirit of god i ask that your presence would be felt in this place lord i believe with all of my being that nobody is here by accident and the message that we are going to hear today from your word not from me from your word is meant for us all And we need to respond to it. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us courageous hearts, hungry hearts, hearts that will say, oh, God, speak to me, please. Lord, whatever condition we find ourselves in today, some of us are hurting. And we need, Father, for you to heal us. Father, some of us are running. And we need you to stop us and turn us back to you. Some of us here are questioning you. We're kind of standing a little bit like that child who is being stubborn and just setting their jaw and stamping their foot. And so, Father, we need you to tenderly break us. Father, some of us are sinning. And we need you to quietly and lovingly show us how the lie of that sin will never help us or give us what pursuing you will. My God and my Savior, I do pray that my friends and visitors, my brothers and sisters in Christ, indeed my own biological family with my wife and my son and daughter will hear a much better sermon than I could ever preach. Spirit of the living God, I ask that you would fall fresh on me. And I pray now that as this train leaves the station that we will end up at the table of the Lord and people will understand how we got there. And so I give this time to you in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So if you have a Bible at Acts chapter 20, I want to read a portion of scripture. And if you are visiting, we had a a crazy week last week. Uh, Calvary Baptist Church kind of formally welcomed me as one of the elders, the newest of the elders of this church into ministry here. 
and uh, been here since about January the 12th. And we've been looking at the the book of First Timothy, which is a what's called a pastoral epistle. And we're looking at how we, the church, should live, how the people of God should live. And, and I think that that's pertinent because the, everybody here, maybe this isn't the only church you've ever known. In fact, for many of you, this is not the only church you've known. For many of you, being in a Baptist church is not the only denominational church you've ever been in. You've been in maybe multiple churches of multiple names. You've seen all kinds of things. And yet, have you ever asked yourself, how are the people of God supposed to act? How are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to speak? How are we supposed to treat each other? And all of that is in the Bible. How we're supposed to function as a church is here in the Bible. In fact, God is so concerned, so, should I say, consumed with how people who come to Him and who believe in Him and who trust in Him should act and should think and should speak and how we should treat each other, that He actually formed His church. And He calls the church, are you ready for this? The Bride of Christ. So, so we are an expression of of his bride and and he wants his bride to act a certain way in fact he gives us clear instructions for how the church should be structured and it was interesting how the holy spirit works that we would watch a video on the trinity on a day that we're going to deal with the idea of elders or the servant leaders for god's church now last two weeks ago we learned that christians who are really christians People who really believe in Jesus, we live our lives, remember, in submission. And submission for Christians is not a bad word. All right? Submission in our culture today is very much a bad word. But when you have met Jesus, when, when you have met the one who gave up everything for you so that you can be everything in him, we don't just reluctantly, we gladly say, I will lay down my rights, because Christ gave up everything for me. Because we've learned that often my rights, well, actually, if I ever got my way, in fact, I once heard a pastor say, you should pray that God never, ever lets you truly have your way. Because often he's protecting you from yourself. In fact, there's all kinds of examples of that in the Bible. You go in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was led by God. And they wanted a king because everybody else in the world had a king. And God said to Samuel, yeah, okay, I'll give them a king and they'll get all the stuff that goes with having a king. And it never, ever worked out the way Israel wanted because the ultimate king is Jesus. And that's what, in fact, the whole narrative of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel is showing you. So we live life as Christians in submission. We live it in submission to Jesus Christ gladly. We live it in submission to each other gladly because we trust Christ. We are called as Christians to live in submission to our government in any way, shape, or form that it does not contradict the clear teachings of the Word of God. We have examples of that all through Scripture. Husbands and wives, children with their parents, all of these things were called to act in levels of submission. Well, it should not shock us then that you come inside the church and God has a structure 
in the which we way we interact with one another. And as you heard in the video on the Trinity, God, the Trinity is completely unified. They are completely in harmony. They're completely in fellowship. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit do different things. And they never infringe on the other one. And they do this perfectly, and yet it never infringes on their value or anything like that. So we've been learning about that in church. And so we learned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you don't have to turn there because I got you next, but the key to our whole learning through how we're supposed to function as a church is 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, right? I hope to come to you soon, Paul says to Timothy. He's writing to him. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... So Paul is basically saying, Tim, look, I'm sending you to the church at Ephesus. All right, where you're going to go there. I'm hoping to go with you. And we're going to tell the church at Ephesus some things. But if I delay, Paul's saying, if I don't get there, and the reason I have you in Acts 20 is so you'll understand why he didn't get there. Okay? He says, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. If Paul would write that, and we believe this is the Bible, then that means that God must have a way, there must be a right way and a wrong way for us to behave in the household of God. The truth is, though, we have taken it in our culture and we've wrapped it up in all kinds of externals, haven't we? How you dress, how you speak, when you stand, when you sit, what you do, how loud you talk, or if you whisper, how many times you come. Did you come early or did you come late? Did you stay? Were you the last to leave or the first to come? How big's your Bible or how small is it? Do you have a certain version or do you have an electronic version? All of these things, on and on and on it goes. We tend to think of church. In fact, many of you got up this morning and said, we're going to church as if this was the church. No, this is a building. You are the church. So when Paul says how one ought to behave in the household of God, he's not talking about whether or not when the music starts, you should all sit here and sit up straight and nobody should look around or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or when you're praying, everybody's got their head bowed and their eye closed. That's not what he's talking about. How we ought to behave in the household of God is how we see each other, how we treat each other, and how we do that in front of a watching world. That's the essence, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here's why that's important, because the household of God is the church of the living God. You, us, we are the bride of Christ. If you know Jesus, you are the son of God, the daughter of God. We are the church of the living God. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living God. That's a great place for you to go, uh-huh, or amen. Or if, you're too, if you really want to get churchy, you yell out amen. If you want to just be bursting, you go, uh-huh. All right, you just honk that out there, okay, whichever way you want. We are the church of the living God because we have a living God. Now, notice this at the end. He says, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, think about that. Paul says the church should be a place that is a pillar. You know, I've been able to go to Israel four times. And when I've gone to Israel, to some of the ancient cities that they've uncovered and stuff like that. And I went to a place called Bethshan which is the biggest archaeological dig in all of Israel. 
and it is a, one of the ancient Phili- uh, uh, cities of the Philippines. It was part of the, Deoc- the Decapolis of Rome, the ten cities of Rome. And there are these massive pillars that it would take three or four people to join hands so you get yourselves around and they go up 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet and they just stand out and you can see them long before you get into this massive pillar and it just stands out. And Paul says, look, the church of the living God is to be a pillar. It should stand out. It should show its strength. It should show its testimony. It should be a beacon by which people can go, I can set my landmark. When we had our visitors last week, Paul Martin was here, not the prime minister. Um, Derek Jones was here, Glenn Good. Well, Paul had never been to Newfoundland. So the pillar of this city is what? Tell me. Somebody said it. Cabot Tower, Signal Hill, right? Wherever you are. In fact, as I grew up, wherever I was in the city, if I ever got lost, I found Signal Hill and I kind of set my bearings to it. Because Signal Hill stands up there as a place where wherever you're at in this city, you can get your bearing from it. Is that Calvary Baptist Church in the city of St. John's when it comes to Jesus Christ? When it comes to the truth, a pillar of the truth? But notice a buttress of the... You know what the buttress means there? It means that things can collide against it and it stands. It means the church, us, we are supposed to be a people that when the culture collides against it, when false theology or false thinking, when selfishness, when me-isms collide against it, when different ebbs and flows of, of thinking start to take over and collides against it, we are an example of the truth. Is that us? That's why all this structure is important. So two weeks ago, we learned about who elders are. So Dave, if you've got that uh, slide for me, Steve Dobb put this together. I think this guy is as close to looking like me as possible. Maybe I'm a little bigger in the middle. But last week or two weeks ago, we learned that an elder is a servant leader, a reflector of God's design and dependent on the gospel. All right. Two weeks ago, that's what we learned. That's an elder. Okay. Me, Paul, who's not here, is traveling. Daniel, Jeff, We're elders, okay? So we are to be the servant leaders of this church, not the dictators, not the captains, not the guys in charge, the servant leaders. We are to be reflectors of God's design, that we want to reflect how God wants to structure his church. And most of all, we are supposed to be dependent on the gospel. I was thinking about that this morning. I get up early in the mornings, and I'll I'll tell you this truth. I practice preach my sermons. Usually drive my wife crazy and my kids think I'm a little insane. I get down in our dining room, shut all the doors, and I literally stand up and I just practice through my sermon. And it's very therapeutic for me, I have to tell you. I allow sometimes my emotions get the better of me and it really hits me. And as I was talking about being dependent on the gospel, I got to thinking about the brevity of my own life. And I got to thinking about the fact that I'm back in my home province, the fact that all of my family is buried out in Harbor Grace, my mom and dad who live away, and my dad's a pastor in Nova Scotia, but yet when they die, their wish is to be buried in Newfoundland. So I've got to bring them back and take care of that when they pass away. And to be honest with you, I want to be buried with my family. And I was thinking, you know, of all the things that could be put on my tombstone, of all the things that 
I would wish or want, but man, if the people of this church, if the ministries that I've been in, if my family, I would love to be known when I die as, you know what, say what you will about Steve, but he was dependent on the gospel. He just lived his life dependent on the gospel. If I want you all to know anything about me at all, if I want you to know anything about Daniel or Jeff or Paul, is you know what, they were imperfect guys, but they were dependent on the gospel. They needed the gospel in their lives every day. And that's what an elder is. But notice, so this is the elder. This is what he is. These things here are what he does. All right? So an elder is a pastor. He's a bishop in certain uh, translations that you might have. He's an overseer. Daniel read it in Titus chapter 3 today. He's an elder. And that word there means mature in the faith. Okay? He's also a preacher teacher. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. So an elder is this, and this is what he does. So I'm not the pastor, and Daniel and Jeff are elders. No, we are elders, and every one of us is called to do these things. Now, we might be gifted differently from God. Remember the Trinity? Diversity with unity. So, one of them might be better at doing the overseeing part than I am. Usually that overseeing, think about administration, the ability to put things together and see them, all right? Pastoring is shepherding, and that's going to be a big deal as we come to the table of the Lord today. You have bishop. Again, that's another word in transcript. It just means overseer, elder, preacher, teacher. That's what I'm doing. And you're going to see when we get to 1 Timothy 5 that the elders, you'll have ruling elders, those that focus more on overseeing, and you'll have preaching and teaching elders. So primarily my role at Calvary Baptist, I spend more of my energy in the preaching, teaching area. You all as a church collectively allow me to be free from any other hindrance in regards to work so I can be here to spend time in God's Word, to spend time in prayer, to meet with people in crisis, to be on basically almost like 24-hour call. You allow me to, to get books and to read books and to read God's Word. That doesn't make me better. That doesn't make me more important. That doesn't make me have more power than Daniel or Jeff or Paul. It means we're just different. Okay? And at times... Daniel's called to do things, Jeff is called to do things, Paul is called to do things that I'm not called to do. In fact, the preacher-teacher part there of Ephesians 4, if you were to go there, reminds you, pastor-teachers are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In a few weeks when we get to deacons, one of the things you're going to hear me challenge us as a church is, is Calvary Baptist too pastor-dependent? Where I, Because I grew up in a church where if someone got sick or someone was hurting or someone needed to be moved or someone needed food or someone needed love and care or someone needed a, 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 a something fixed around the house or something needed to be done around the church, I would go to the hospital, especially in my last ministry, and there was five elders and 13 deacons. And sometimes someone would go to the hospital and I would go and visit. And because of all of my other duties, I didn't get there, but I'd walk in and the person would say this to me, Pastor Steve, it's so good to see you. Brother so-and-so came to see me. Sister so-and-so came to me. This family came to see me. That family came to see me. But it's so good now that you're here. As if somehow the church hadn't cared for them. You see, that's not healthy. 
That's, that's to get off track of what God wants His church to be. Okay? So today we're going to focus, as we get to the Lord's table, now we're going to look at, that's who an elder is. Today we're going to look at what do elders do. All right? So that's my one point for today. All right? So breathe. Everybody. Ooh, okay. Breathe. I got one point for today. What do elders do? And that's why I have you at Acts chapter 20. Now I want to read to you Acts chapter 20. Context. Verse 17, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's been traveling all through Asia. He's been collecting money for those in Jerusalem. And he's on his way. So he gets to, now in verse 17, now from uh, Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now notice, again, elders, plural. Everywhere in Scripture, elders, plural. You have here a plurality of elders, all right? So the elders come, and he says this. Now, beginning, Paul testifies. I want you to walk through with this with me. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now, there is no place that I can take you and, and where the Bible says, now, here's how you, who, th- this is who elders are, and this is how they should act, and this is how you should measure them. There's no one passage. There's a compilation of passages for that. Just walk through here what Paul says. He says, from the first day I got in Asia, here's what you've known from me. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, if you were here last week, remember humility versus pride? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Paul says, listen, since God called me into this ministry, you have known that I have served him with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, even though he's a Jew. He says, 20, how I did not shrink, notice this, from declaring to you anything that was profitable, that's preaching, and teaching you in public and from house to house. Now, what did he do? Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Here it is. Of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Now, notice this. For those of you that are kind of wondering in your backgrounds about uh, the sign gifts and how does God's Spirit work, notice how Paul says it. I'm being constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is telling me to do this. But notice, not knowing what will happen to me there. He doesn't claim what he doesn't know. He says, God's Spirit is telling me to go, but I have no idea of what's going to happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. He says, but when I look over my shoulder, what usually happens to me as I serve God, here's what usually happens. Imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, church, i got to be honest. Own that in the Holy Spirit. Because most of the times what I'm confronted with, when people tell me the Holy Spirit spoke to them, it's usually to tell them to do, be better off. Usually people don't come into me and say, the Holy Spirit told me to do this, and it's likely going to mean I'm going to suffer and possibly die. Few people come to you like that. This is Paul's testimony. All I know, and if you go back to Acts chapter 8 and his conversion, when Ananias is told to go because he says, Paul prays, and Ananias says, um, listen, God, 
Do you know who this Saul fella is? And he says to him, listen, you go to him because I have saved him and I will tell you he will suffer for me. And Paul owns it. All I know is that the Holy Spirit's telling me to go and likely I'm going to. Now, you got to realize this happens. If you turn over a few pages, he goes to Jerusalem. The elders of the church come to him and say, Paul, listen, we love you. Thanks for the money. Thanks for helping us out. But you've been hanging out with a lot of Gentiles and we're a very Jewish church and you're going to really ruffle feathers. And so would you take a Nazarite vow, which meant he had to pay more money out of his pocket and we got four guys here and we'd like you to pay for them and they go into the temple. You know what happens? He gets beaten he gets arrested. He gets sent to Caesarea where he's imprisoned for two years. He becomes like a circus freak show for the proconsuls of Rome, for Felix and Festus. He finally uh, appeals to Caesar, gets sent to Rome, in the process of getting sent to Rome, gets shipwrecked, spends time in the water, ends up on an island where he gets bitten by a snake, or this other, sorry, this other guy gets bitten by a snake, and he heals, no, he gets bitten by a snake, he doesn't die, and then he heals another guy in charge of the island. And then he ends up in house arrest at Rome, gets released, writes 1 Timothy, gets arrested again, gets released, writes 2 Timothy, then has his head chopped off. There you go. That's a great life. Right? This is what I want you to understand. So he says, this is what's happened to me. Now, notice what he does. Verse 24, here's his testimony still. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And here's his ministry. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul says, look, when I leave you now, guys, you will never see me again. And that happens. Therefore, verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. For I did not shrink, here it is again, elders, from, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now he addresses the elders at Ephesus. So for Steve, for Daniel, for Jeff, for Paul, for any of you here that feel the call of God on your life, that maybe God is calling you to a ministry, here is what you do. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay dependent on the gospel. Remember that slide? Depend on, so pay careful attention to yourselves. Now notice this. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, there's the word overseers. This is what he does now. This is what they do to care. That word to care, if you write in your Bible, is the word to pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now notice why Paul says this to these elders, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, the leaders will come in among you, sorry, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So therefore, be alert. Pay careful attention to yourself. 
Pay careful attention to the flock. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone. Now, again, if you want to follow words, to admonish is not a warm and fuzzy word. To admonish you, in some cases, means to get in your face. To admonish you, and here's what it is. So often we think pastors do this. All right? That we come down and we do this. No, what he means here is do this. That's what he means. Admonish them. Put God's word, put a picture of God in front of the people all the time. So when you're going through a rough time, when you feel like friends are betraying you, when you feel like your marriage is on the rocks, when you feel like, how am I going to find a job? This is, what, this is what a good pastor does. This is what a, he doesn't spew out his, his, his uh, interpretations or his opinions. No, he points you to God's word. And by the way, as we're going to see when we come to the Lord's table, um, that's something we're all supposed to do. Point each other to God's word. Your pastors do that for you. They shepherd you. And that's what he says, to admonish them and all these things. This is what he says. And then he says, You yourselves know that I coveted no one's silver or apparel, that that these hands ministered to my necessities. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must, now notice this, help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Do we have that kind of care amongst ourselves? I'm I'm going to be very selfish and bold. I am hoping that after so many years of ministry here and building friendships, that if God calls me away, that I would cry about that and so would you. That if Daniel and Amanda moved away, that we would cry over that, and so would they. That if Jeff and Jennifer left, that we would cry over that, and so would they. That if Paul and Jennifer left, that we would cry over that, because we have, we have done life together. Leaving Grace Baptist Church, when God called me here after being 15, 16 years in one place, raising our family our daughter was born in Prince Edward Island. These, these were the people that we had blood, sweat, and teared with. Half of the deacons, when I left, I had watched them graduate from high school and get married and start families. And I had been there for their graduations and been there for their weddings and walked in. And I will tell you that the day we left was very hard. And there was a lot of tears. And there was a lot of sorrow, but it was sweet sorrow. And so it's neat now when I hear stories of people moving on with Christ and new men and women that are serving the Lord and all these things. And that is what Paul is drawing here to. So what do elders do? What do elders do? Notice, pay careful attention. I wanted just to just see it. Everything that I should be doing as one of your elders, everything that Paul and Daniel and Jeff, they're not, it's, not, it's not only required, it's commanded. All right? And I want you to see what it is. We are to lead under God's authority. We are to lead you, the church, under God's authority. And only this church. I don't have any authority over any other church. Neither do these guys. 
We are to lead this church. We are to pray for other churches. We are to cooperate with other churches where we can. We are to love them, encourage them. It is not my place when people come to me and tell me about the inner workings of their church to say, well, you know, if they were good elders, this is what they would do. No, that's sin. I should tell those people to go back and talk to their leadership, to pray for their leadership, to come under the submission of their leadership. That's what we're supposed to do. And if you ever hear me pontificating about how much better we are than anybody else, you need to get in my grill and take this Bible and turn it around and go, Steve, yeah, dude, here. You need to do that to me. All right? That's the way we're supposed to act with each other. So elders lead under God's authority. The Holy Spirit, Paul said, made you overseers. Elders are entrusted with leading a church by um, a church by Jesus Christ himself. We are not the final authority. <laughs> I am not the final authority of this church. Christ is. The elders belong to the church and the church belongs to God. And we all collectively answer to the chief elder of this church, Jesus Christ. So leading was never designed by God to be a power struggle among elders. It was never to be a power struggle amongst a pastor and a board of deacons or a shadow government. It was never meant to be a power struggle between the guy who preaches and the people that have been here the longest or the people that give the most or the people that serve the most. That's not a healthy church. Imagine if we ran a family that way. Imagine if I said to my kids, well, since Brandon is older and more stronger, he gets to make all the shots. He gets to call all the shots. Or if Jordan, because he's pursuing business, starts making more money. So I said to Brandon, well, you know, since Jordan makes more money, I'm going to listen to him before I listen to you. You, If you all heard me say that, you'd all come to me and go, Steve, listen, man, you got some issues with your fathering. Well, why is that okay in the church? In fact, I'll shoot this one off at you because... Again, we come to the table of the Lord. You'll all have to forgive me before we participate. Oz Guinness has written this quote, and I'm going to quote it again next week. He says, if a, if a pastor struggles with wine, we kick him out of the ministry. But if he's hungry on money, we usually make him a deacon. Let that sink in. See how sometimes we take things and we twist it? An elder leads under God's authority. Now, secondly, and most importantly, they care for the church. They care for the church. Now, practically, what does that look like? Because that word pastor means shepherd. So what does that look like for us here at Calvary? I want you to see again, that's function, not value. Care here means spiritually. It means that we take an active interest in your lives, in your discipleship. That's that whole Ephesians 4 passage. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that you'll be mature and built up and Christ is glorified. Pastors should be the ultimate friend in a church. Not the ultimate authority. If a pastor's unapproachable, then he needs to be challenged. You should be able to go to your pastors, your elders. You should be able to talk to your elders. You should be able to share anything with your elders and not see judgmental eyes or condescending eyes. The pastor should be that friend. That Now, remember, young people, you're going to hear me say this, and I wish the adults would get it. A real friend tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And too many of you build your friendships 
around people that will simply stroke your ego or affirm you. Real friends push back. At the end of October, my best male friend outside of my wife is coming here. Some of you know him and his family. Herb Hunter, he's going to preach. He just left his, mission, his ministry to call, answer the call to South Africa, and I'm going to have him preach here at the end of October. I love, I talk to Herb at least twice a week, sometimes three times a week. And he is my dearest friend. And you know why he's my dearest friend? Because he messes with me. He pushes back against me. When we talk about our lives and our families and our wives and our children, he, we never just, expl- just exchange pleasantries. When I say, yeah, Deb and I were doing this and doing that, and he goes, well, how does she know that you're doing that and doing this? How does Deb know that you love her? When was the last time you just wowed Deb? He asks me things like that. When I tell him about the boys or about the kids, and for those of you, Brandon's not here, so I'll talk about him. Um, our oldest boy um, loves Jesus and loves long hair and tattoos. And I don't. I do love Jesus, not the other two. <laughs> and I struggle. I struggle with a son like that. I got to be honest. Brandon knows this. I'm not talking behind his back. And Herb gets in my grill every time. He really does. He goes, but when was the last time you told your boy you loved him? When was the last time you encouraged him because he's seeking the Lord's face? When was the last time you prayed for your son and you didn't pray with like, now Lord, be with him and Lord, cut his hair. Like where you didn't pray with an ulterior motive. Herb questions me about those things. Folks, where, where are your friends like that? Where are the brothers and sisters in your life that can really push at you? And yes, you can even disagree vehemently, but you don't turn your back on each other and you pursue each other. This is what a pastor does. And this is why, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. I know Daniel's going to get there. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, is all of this message put into one passage, okay? And I want you to think about Peter here for a second. So, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you. So he's talking again to the plurality of elders. Now notice Peter's humility. As a fellow elder. Now he says that before he says this, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Understand what he's saying. He is making sure they know he's an apostle. He's a disciple. But he puts his eldership ahead of his discipleship. That's humility. Because he could have said, listen, I'm a disciple, man. But no, he says, I exhort the elders as a fellow elder and as a disciple. Look at this. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, think about what he's doing there. Now he's associating with everybody because that's every Christian. If you're a Christian, you're going to be a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He says, now, this is what he says to the elders. Shepherd the flock. Again, if you write in your Bible, that's pastor. Pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's overseeing. That's leading. But notice, not under compulsion. Now, again, in English, this is not meaning like someone's behind me going, shoving me into the ministry. This means where I'm trying to be uh, in control of the ministry. I'm trying to put myself out there. Not in sentences, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now notice this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When I went to Israel, one of the other, one of my highlights was I got to go to the Golan Heights, to the war memorial 
for Israel of the Yom Kippur War and the Six-Day War. And it was amazing to me. It was very surreal because I could see Damascus in the horizon. All of uh, Israel's behind me. Places that are still riddled with bombs and craters and bullets and stuff like that. And this, this monument that has this barbed wire and just names and rows and columns of names. And my tour guide said, go up and read the ranks of those listed. And when you go up, they're not privates. They're captains and lieutenants and colonels. Because he said, in the Jewish army, when you go to war, the captains and the generals don't stay back. They march out in front. And in this particular war, when all of this barbed wire had been laid out, a handful of these colonels and captains went up and they threw themselves over the barbed wire and told their men to crawl over them so they could go fight the war. And their own men basically stampeded them to death so they could go fight for Israel. This is what he's saying. You don't domineer and lead from the back. You get out in front and you lead by example. So church, that's what you're supposed to be looking for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And he says, now, look look how what happens now. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Here we go, flashback to last Sunday with humility toward one another. And here's our passage, right? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. Now, I wish I could get, get you guys to understand this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Get what that means. It means place yourself under God. Just Just go to God. I have nothing. I am not worthy. I have no rights. Put yourself humbly before the mighty hand of God. Realize that language. The mighty hand of God. But notice how then it turns. The moment you admit, I can't, but he can. The moment you admit, I'm not worthy, but you are. The moment, and and guys, in the gospel, that's not just admitting I've failed a few times. That's acknowledging even my attempts at righteousness are an affront to the holiness of God. Notice the sequence. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, look, He may exalt you. You know what I want so badly for us as a church to experience? What it's like when God lifts us up. Because that lasts for eternity. But notice what happens when you experience this. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a coffee cup verse, right? That's a t-shirt verse. That's a, a, a Bible picture verse. But do you ever put it in the context of everything here? Peter's saying, look, when you humble yourself, when you bring yourself low, when you admit how big and awesome God is and how small and tiny you are, and then God who doesn't need you, who can get by without you, chooses to love you and chooses to use you and chooses to lift you up out of the goodness of his good pleasure, then he, when you realize and experience that kind of love, now you don't have any problems casting all your anxieties on him because you know he cares for you. So you know what that means? Notice, now you stop running. Now you stop pretending. Now you stop trying. See, so many of us come to church and we're trying to look like we got it all together when everybody knows you don't, all right? So many of us come to church and we act like we got it all together 
and everybody knows you don't. And some of you have reached the other end of the spectrum. You've so not measured up, you're like, screw it, I'm not even going to try. Because that was me. When I, at 21, came to Christ, I told God on my bed that day in 1993, I said, Lord, either you're real and I'm coming to you. Because if you're not real, I'm getting off this bed and I will go live the most hellish life known to mankind and I'll see you in hell. And God got a hold of me and he grabbed me and he saved me. And you know what? Because I've experienced the unmitigated grace and mercy and forgiveness and love of God, where would I go but to the Lord, as the old Southern Gospel song says, right? Why would you run? Why would you hide? Why would you try harder? Oh, Calvary, that you would understand it's not about trying harder, but believing better. And then responding. Now, some of you think about shepherding, all right, as I clue this up. Many people talk about the pastor as a shepherd, all right? Now, let's be honest. Some of you have done it with me already, all right? Where you've had roast pastor for lunch, all right? Or you've had coffee over the pastor, okay? And you've chatted about my abilities or Daniel's abilities or Jeff's abilities or Paul's abilities or somebody's past pastor's experiences where you've talked about, you know what? He can't preach really well, but he's a great pastor. He's a good shepherd. He's good with people. Or, you know what? He's a great preacher, but he's lousy with people. You've all had this conversation. Don't deny it, all right? You've all talked about and wondered about pastors' strengths and his weakness. Now, most people in church want a pastor who knows how to shepherd. In fact, you will find if a pastor knows how to care for people, that they'll often overlook some bad preaching. They'll often overlook some bad administration if he really knows how to be friendly and how to care and how to get into people's homes and in their lives and interact with them. They'll often do that. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's usually the pattern. But now think about something. If you are one of those people who go, yeah, I really want a pastor who's a great shepherd. I really want a pastor who knows how to shepherd the flock. All right, now think about that. If you want that, that means you're claiming you're a sheep. Now, let's review what a sheep is. Sheep are timid, stubborn, slow learners, quick to forget, vulnerable, sheepish, all right, weak, can quite literally be scared to death. I have a, f- a friend when I was in Israel who talked about this form of sheep that if you jumped out and scared them, they froze, had heart attacks, and flopped over dead. <laughs> they can be scared to death. They're easy prey, right? They don't, they don't know how to get out of their own way. And when they're together, like they're, it's just like a big ball of cloudy wool moving around, and they can't even figure out how to get. Listen, uh, if sheep, you know why Psalm 23 says, He leads me beside the still waters? Sheep won't drink at a running book. It freaks them out. They're that temperamental and that timid of mind. Ta-da! Sheep. Do y'all want a pastor who's a great shepherd now? Think that through. And yet your Bible is full of illustrations about people being sheep. Isaiah 53, 6, the table of the Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
Romans 8, Paul says, after you get to your coffee cup verse of all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose, do you know what the next, the couple, two verses now, I think it's verse 30 says? All we like sheep are led to the slaughter. I, you might be picking up on me. I'm not a big fan of the coffee cup verse and the t-shirt verse and the daily bread verse because so often they're ripped out of the context of what's being said. All right, understand this. The Bible declares that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Go with me to John 10, and then we're going to have the table of the Lord. Man, time gets by me. Man, I'm just getting having fun preaching this stuff, and then I'm like, there's no time. John chapter 10. Jesus says this, and then we're going to come to the table of the Lord. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Now get the context again. He says in John chapter 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you try to get to God as Father, but you don't do it the right way, is a thief and a robber. And that the people that are trying to, namely the Pharisees, religious people, he's basically looking at the religious and saying, you are thieves. You are in, you're not in this for God. Okay? But he who enters by the door is the shepherd to the sheep. Now he's talking about himself. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before. Now notice this. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, now he's going to make it really clear, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Listen, the Christian life may be a life of suffering. It may be a life where you don't get to prosper, but it is an abundant life. Because when you get Jesus, you get everything. Okay? He said, I didn't just come to give you life. I gave you come to give you abundant life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now here's a, a picture of bad elders. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He's addressing the Pharisees who claim to be representatives of God. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also. Now listen, if you want to get encouraged, if one thing you can take from today, you write in your Bible, I want you to write in the margin, Jesus is talking about me because he's talking about you there. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's thinking about you and I. And I must bring them also. 
So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So anytime somebody tells you the Jews killed Jesus, that is not true. Jesus laid down his life. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Notice Trinity people, diversity and, and yet unity. This charge I received from my father. Jesus is saying, I am God, but this is Philippians 2. But I did not count my godness something to be grasped, and I laid myself down. All right? And now there's this division amongst the Jews. And they think he's crazy. Huh. Now notice a little bit further down. And he says in chapter, in chapter 10, he says, uh, Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not of my flock. Now notice this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. So, you didn't choose to have eternal life. God gives you eternal life. So Jesus is not some cosmic chef or waiter going around with a set of hors d'oeuvres of eternal life asking if anybody wants it and you choose it off the plate. That's not how what he says. He says, I give them eternal life. When Jesus saves you, he gives you eternal life. And notice, and they will never perish. That's finally someone said it. They will never perish. And he says, I love this. He goes, <laughs> and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And that includes you, by the way, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So what does an elder do? He leads under God's authority. He shepherds under Christ's example and he teaches God's word, which I don't have time to unpack. So I'm going to ask now, Jeff and Steve, would you come forward? And I want to end as we come to the table of the Lord. But I want to make sure everybody understands this. Elders are called of God to lead and to shepherd and to preach and teach. And I'll unpack, unpack preach and teach next week. So for myself and for Paul, for Daniel and for Jeff, I think the application is pretty obvious. Are we going to be godly shepherds and pastors and elders? And the only way that we're going to say yes to that is we've got to be dependent on the gospel. And so for my brothers and myself, before my church family, I want to say for us, we need to be men who are dependent on the gospel. And that's why I love this table.